you need to forget everything that you've been told about your spiritual responsibility toward an abuser and take steps, immediate definitive steps toward getting out, starting over, and finally getting to know who you are. If you are in a relationship right now that is abusive and you feel like you should get out, get out because that's the only way that you're ever gonna know you ever again. When you've got your God to hide behind, it makes it a whole lot more difficult for anyone to stand in the way of what you as the priest and head of your household want to happen in your household. This isn't what any loving God would want for you, and it's certainly not something that you should go on enduring, hoping that your partner will change. If you don't have to spend one more night cohabitating with an abuser, don't. There are few issues out there onto which this religion pours more gasoline onto the fire. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get Unbound. You know, even as we were recording last week, and especially when I was in the editing process, it occurred to me that we really just threw a bone to this topic. And I really thought that it was important that we expand on it a little bit this week. And then a little bit turned into a lot (laughs) because there's so much that can be said here. And I do think that it's going to be a one episode thing, but there's a lot that needs to be said on the subject of abusive relationships Right. on the heels of a discussion on unconditional forgiveness. I think that this is a worthy topic to also tackle so that people understand, especially evangelicals, people coming out of evangelical religion and those even who have been out for a while because the thought processes stay in there for a long time. We've talked about this before. The thoughts stay in there. The way that we think doesn't change that much, even when we figure out how wrong it is. It doesn't change that much. So that's what I want to talk about a little bit tonight. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And let's just get right into the heart of our message tonight. Why do evangelicals, particularly evangelical women, stay with abusive partners? Well, it all starts with Ephesians chapter 5, as far as I'm concerned. Ephesians 5, and 23 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Submit to your husbands. You know, even when we were in this, yeah. that phrase, it really did something to me. It yeah. has a very jarring effect on my brain. Submit to your husbands. I don't want a woman who's going to submit to me. I want a woman who's going to be my partner. Right. And I've always wanted that. I never wanted a submissive wife. Right. I always liked the idea of us doing things as a couple, making right. decisions as a couple, having a relationship that was one that was rooted and built up on love, mutual respect, partnership. I didn't want someone to submit to me for the rest of my life. I just flat out never, ever wanted that. Mm. But women are told to be in submission to their husbands and everything mean enduring all kinds of abuses. To be fair, verses 25, 28, and 33 do in fact tell husbands to love their wives, but gives no roadmap for what that entails. And how many times have we heard this? Not, Not even in 
evangelical context, but just in the context of domestic abuse, he hits me because he loves me. Yeah. And because I don't listen. And he's just trying to make me a better person. Well, there are so many better ways of making someone a better person, like leaving them alone and letting them find their own way and becoming their own better person. Right. I mean, I think that that pretty much encapsulates most of it is to just be the loving partner who allows your partner to become what they're going to become at the pace that they're going to become it. I mean, that's always been my take on this. Right. I never saw myself in the position of having to make you into anything. No. No. There's a societal thing that women still get the hair in their heads that I can change him. Well, yeah, it does go both ways. Yeah. I mean, there's this whole thing where he's depending on me. I can save him. But that's also kind of a manipulative thing. Yeah. That sometimes a guy will say, if you go, I will do something crazy. And that's a terrible amount of guilt well, yeah. on somebody else. But yeah, I know that there are a lot of women out there who get the idea that they can change somebody after they married him. There's even a song in uh, Guys and Dolls, and there's a lyric that says, marry the man today and save the fist for after. In other words, she's going to basically hit him. And make him do what she says, which is kind of a flip turnaround. Yeah. And it's six of one, half a dozen of the other because it's still not right. Right. No. But, I mean, I think that song kind of had a satirical edge to it anyway. So Yeah. Oh, that whole thing was satirical. But, yeah, it's it's an ingrained thing in our society as a whole. Just this idea that love conquers all and can change anyone. Well, yeah. If the person wants to be changed. Right. But most people have no desire or intention to change. I didn't marry you so that I could become something else that you would like more over time. Right. You know, I mean, you you saw me at my best and at my worst before you ever said I do. Mm-hmm. You saw a lot that, you know, I, I don't know why three quarters of it didn't scare you away. But then again, when I think about where you were at yeah. the time... I don't know why three quarters of what I saw in you didn't scare me away. Right. But the thing is, I knew who I was marrying. Yeah. And I didn't enter into that relationship thinking that I even had a snowball's chance in hell of, quote unquote, changing you. No. But I think I feel that we've grown together and that's different. Well, yeah. Yeah. I've said before on this show, we, we have evolved a lot. The way that we think about things, our entire relationship dynamic has changed drastically Mm -hmm. since we got married, and we've always managed to stay on the same page. I have no idea how this has happened, but you know, maybe, maybe it has a lot to do with what we're talking about tonight and the absence of those toxins in the relationship that have simply allowed both of us Mm -hmm. to become what we wanted to or needed to become. And, you know, I'm still nowhere near there. I'm still nowhere near perfect. I'm still nowhere near the person that I want to be. But I understand that I have the opportunity to stretch, grow, be me, understand myself better as time goes on. Right. And I feel like I've afforded you that pretty well over the years. You afforded me that when I wasn't taking it. Because when we were especially in college, that passage in Ephesians is really hammered home to all the women in that school. Yes, it is. So 
I mean, I don't know how any woman goes through the pastoral ministries course and actually still manages to become a pastor. Well, I'll tell you precisely how. In a vast majority of cases, they hire the husband and wife as a team. Yes. So that even if she's the one who is assuming most of the responsibility, at least they can say, well, we got the guy here too. And we can call him the pastor. Sometimes they'll call them both pastor, but sometimes even if they like her better than him and they know that she's going to be doing most of the work, he's the one that gets the title. Yeah. And they present them to the congregation as a team. Yes. So that, you know, it's difficult. It's very difficult for a female to be able to get one of those positions on her own and then make a go of it. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it. It's not like it doesn't happen, but it's rare. And I mean, I've heard some of their stories too. Some of them had to fight tooth and nail just to get a really rinky-dink part-time position as a youth pastor so that they could prove their worth, Mm. so they could prove what they were capable of doing so that they could get something a little bit better. Yeah. But, you know, and I mean... With all due respect, there's a lot of really shitty pastoral positions out there, and it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. They'll take advantage of you. They'll pay you nothing. They'll make you feel guilty about even wanting a salary. But it's exponentially more difficult if you're female, and especially if you are female and single, because then there's no one else to bounce it off of. If they hire you as their youth pastor, they get you, and they can't defer everything to your husband. Right. So that makes it a whole lot more difficult. So when I look at these words, when I look at this phrase, submit to your husbands, what I see here and what I have always seen here is an avenue for women being forced to endure domestic violence and abuse. And when you've got your God to hide behind, it makes it a whole lot more difficult anyone to stand in the way of what you as the priest and head of your household want to happen in your household. It's scary the kinds of avenues that these few little words can open up, but they open up some very, very, very dark avenues in the lives of a lot of women. In the course of my research, I came across the, the best article that I found was actually from ABC News Australia. This is from abc.net.au, and it's an article called Submit to Your Husbands, Women Told to Endure Domestic Violence in the Name of God. And the more I read, the more clear it became that there are a lot of clueless people out there, both in and outside of evangelical religion, about what goes on behind the doors of the typical evangelical marriage. Yeah. What goes on in those households, and some of it is very, very scary. So just a quick quote from the article. When we speak of domestic violence and the cultural factors that ferment or instigate it, one critical element missing from the discussion has been religion. Well, I stopped on that, and my first thought was, why? Is it really that much of a secret? The Bible is rife with toxic advice about relationships, most often giving undue power to the man and all but silencing the woman. It protects men and exposes women to all kinds of abuse. Um, Again, from the article, direct quote, research shows that the men most likely to abuse their wives are evangelical Christians who attend church sporadically. Church leaders in Australia say that they abhor abuse of any kind, but advocates say the church is not just failing to sufficiently address domestic violence. It is both enabling and concealing it. 
Let me tell you, folks, it's not just in Australia. No. It happens here all the time, too. I do think it's important to mention here that this is one of those society problems and not one specific to evangelicals. We all know that domestic violence is not simply something that happens in churched families. There are plenty of unchurched people out there going through all the same things. The difference here is largely in the counsel evangelicals get and what influences abuse partners' decisions to stay. The reasons are more nebulous and greatly, greatly varied among the general populace than they are in a religion that mandates unconditional forgiveness and advocates in a staggering majority of instances that abuse partners submit and stay with their abusers. Mm. It's bad enough that so many people have a propensity for just taking abuse. Mixing in toxic advice to someone that provides a better chance of the abuser getting away with it is just plain wrong. And it should be illegal. But it isn't. Pastors and Christian counselors can tell people whatever they want, and their words are protected by applying separation of church and state principles to the situation. If it can be argued that the relationship dynamic is governed by religious principle, and if the abused partner refuses to cooperate with any kind of prosecutory effort or even report the abuse to secular authorities, there is little the law can do to curtail it unless and until it becomes physical. And at that point, it's often too late. So let's focus on this one glaring, fetid, observable cause and start taking it apart. Whenever a woman is abused or victimized in the Bible, it either blames her or punishes her. And the biblical view of women has always been one of inferiority. The ABC Australia article poses several questions about this subject that I want to address. And these come directly from the article. So the questions themselves are right in there. Far too many of them wound up being rhetorical. Far too many of them didn't have the answers, but maybe it's because they just don't know what those answers are. Now, I'm not going to pretend to have all these answers, but I've seen enough of this and I was in this for 25 years. So I feel like I have a pretty good perspective and I feel like I can probably hit the nail on the head with most of these. So let's take a look at them one by one. Question number one, do abused women in church communities face challenges women outside them do not? Well, of course they do. In a non-Christ-centered relationship, people don't typically get married just so they can have sex, which happens all the time in evangelical circles. And well, what does this do? Well, it does a lot of things. It gives the man the idea that his wife is his property, and that notion is affirmed and reinforced through their faith communities. It's reinforced in the Bible, too. Mm. It places sex at the center of the relationship. And I'm sorry, there there are a few worse things that you can build a relationship on than that. Sex is great, and it's an important part of the relationship. But when it's the focal point of it, when it's the reason why you're together and the reason why you get married, it just causes all kinds of problems. When sex becomes commonplace in the relationship, the man treats his wife's decreased interest as a sign of disrespect and even views it as spiritual disobedience in some cases, some in a lot of cases, Mm -hmm. many couples, especially young couples, and you are encouraged to marry young in evangelical circles, way too young. But many couples, especially young couples, get married too early to have even the slightest clue what they want in a partner. They marry for lust, not for love. They won't call it that because lust is a sin, but that's that's what it's about. 
They marry for lust, not for love, whether they know it or care to admit it or not. We were told, you and I, yes, that that I needed to be married if I ever wanted to land a position as a youth pastor. So, you know, there are other situational motivations too. Yeah. Because clearly, if you're married, you're not going to start diddling one of the girls in the youth group. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm okay. sorry. I I saw that. I saw that quite a few times. Well, not, I, I don't want to say quite a few, but I did see it. I could count on more than one hand the number of times that I did see it. Let's put it that way. Young couples in evangelical circles are routinely forced into marriage by angry parents who discover their premarital sexual activity. Shotgun weddings are a real thing. Well, metaphorically speaking, they're a real thing and don't always have to do with unwanted pregnancy. But... Unwanted pregnancy also accounts for a lot of forced or coerced marriages, especially with very young and often immature couples who just wanted to do a little exploring of their own sexuality with someone they liked and trusted. Women are shamed for being even remotely sexual and often agree to marry men they barely know as a means of protecting their reputations should the desire to sleep with a man become difficult to hold at bay. Mm. Again, really, really stupid, dumb, idiotic reason to get married and we've talked about this on the show before right. where i mean just take your pick do you want to do you just want to sleep with somebody and possibly get your heart broken or do you want to make a legal contract out of it that now just ruins your life ruins your credit ruins everything yeah. because you felt you needed to have that ring on that finger to experience this thing no you really do not you really totally and completely do not so the second question that they pose in the article, do perpetrators ever claim church teachings on male control excuse their abuse or tell victims they must stay? Um, yeah, constantly, uh, whether it's outward or inward, whether it's just ingrained in the thought processes or whether they say it right out loud, it's there. When issues of abuse come to light, abusive behavior on the part of males is either outright dismissed, viewed as a sign that he needs prayer or is deemed indicative of various needs not being met. And not just sexual needs, but that's a big part of it. Many Christian counselors also either suggest or state outright that it is the woman's job to change the man by upholding more godly standards for herself and in the household. So what does this entail? It entails being obedient, never arguing or asserting an opposing view, Dressing how he wants. Oh, I'm going to stop on this one. Do you remember when we were invited to lead worship at that church in West Springfield and the, and the dumpster fire of a sermon that followed where yes. that guy was talking about this very subject yep. and how when his wife gets dressed for church on Sunday, he inspects her. Yeah. And clothesline preaching. Oh my God. And you know, I'm, and I'm sitting there listening to this. And I'm looking over at you, and my first thought was, you know what? I've made a lot of mistakes in my marriage. <laughs> I have done things that I am not at all proud of, that I'm flat out ashamed of, but I have never once told my wife to put a safety pin over her cleavage because she's quote unquote showing. <laughs> It's not something that's ever even been in my like, head to do. I've never once tried in any way, shape, or form to dress my wife, except that one time with those shoes. Remember the shoes? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. They looked <laughs> terrible. I was like, uh, I look like the Wicked Witch of the West. So, yeah, we had a conversation 
about a pair of shoes. You needed to get a new pair of shoes. It's like, but you have these. So you, you put them on with the outfit that, um, yeah. that you were going to wear. And I said, yeah. <laughs> I just, I just, you see, they can't see what you're doing. I know. But, <laughs> but she, she looked at me with this what the fuck expression on her face. <laughs> like, are you satisfied now? Can I just order these fucking shoes now? <laughs> Yeah, right. Can I just get some shoes? Thank you. I don't think that I've done anything close to that since. No. And even then, it was just a matter of, okay, well, you know what? Do we need to spend the money on this? Will these work? Was really more of what it was. It wasn't even a fashion thing or I was afraid of what people were going to think kind of thing. It was nothing like that. It was just we we were newly married and we were broke. Yeah. But then I saw... I saw what that looks like. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Shoes would be good here. Shoes a different pair of shoes would be good here. But I do not think that I have done anything no. like that since. And no. even that, I mean, come on. It, it wasn't the same as telling your wife to put a safety pin on her blouse because she's quote unquote showing. Oh, my God. And I'll bet you dollars to donuts that she wasn't even showing cleavage. I'll bet you it was just a little bit too much chest for his taste. Yeah. And that probably. was that. Probably. So since I stopped myself mid-sentence here in my notes, I'm going to just backtrack and start that sentence over again so that you get the entire context, you get everything in in (laughs) one chunk. Being obedient, never arguing or asserting an opposing view, dressing how he wants, never giving another male the time of day, even on a purely platonic level, and providing sex on demand. This is basically what the whole submissiveness thing is. Uh, boils down to when any of the above happens or fails to happen it is an avenue for the man to exert dominance and justify his abusive behaviors from the same article this was this was a quote from someone that they interviewed for this article one woman wrote in a statement prepared for court quote if i refused to have sex with him he would become incandescent with rage it was easier to give in than argue Those nights, I felt like that I was almost being raped, end quote. She then tells the interviewer that her husband once forced her to have sex just three weeks after giving birth. Now, I don't know much about what the female body goes through after birth, but I do seem to recall a little something in my um, child psychology and adolescent development class about a minimum of about six weeks for your body to reset. And heal. At least six weeks because there are all kinds of things that need to happen. Your uterus does not go back to its normal size when you give birth. That takes weeks in and of itself. And then there are other things. Episiotomies. Yeah. (sighs) C-sections. And I'm sorry, most women are going to have an episiotomy. Yeah. to, uh, To be able to give birth a little bit easier. And that does not heal over the course of just three weeks that her body goes through a lot. Yeah. But here's the thing. I've heard of this happening days after childbirth. I have seen people, both men and women brag about having children nine months apart. Well, what exactly is happening if you're having babies nine months apart? Mm. It means that you're going back to it immediately. And that is not good for her, it is not good for her body. It is not good for her view of sex in general. Yeah. And, you know, guys, be patient. I mean, you still have the rest of your lives. So 
you know, this is supposed to be a happy time for you. And with all due respect, if you even have the energy within the first three weeks to even think about sex, more power to you. I know that there's no possible way that it would have even been a thought in my mind three weeks in getting an average of two or three hours of sleep every night as it was. Even if I had the desire, even if I had the drive, I sure as hell didn't have the energy. And I'm certain that you didn't either. It was a difficult time. And with you, you had the extra added bonus of your body going through that healing process while you had the responsibility of a brand new parent thrust upon you. Right. So it's, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. And, you know, the only way the only way I can think of if he had the energy to do anything is that he wasn't doing anything to help. Well, yeah. And, and you know what? As someone who was very involved yeah. with uh, with Liam when he was a baby, that didn't even cross my mind until now. But, yeah. So he's probably you know, his his job ended nine months ago. Right. And that's that. So, sure, if he's not getting up and giving those bottles or changing those diapers in the middle of the night and he's just snoring away while she takes care of the kid, oh, yeah, you know what? I guess I sort of can see how his libido would start taking a little bit of a hit knowing that he's not getting any. Yeah. So, yeah. But, again, I've heard of it happening within days. That's crazy. Days. And it's beyond crazy and it's beyond irresponsible. I'm sorry, on, on the part of both, but in the context of what we're talking about, you know, how much freedom does she have to say no? Yeah. Probably very little. So question number three that the article poses, why have there been so few sermons on domestic violence? I'm sorry, to me, this is a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, because abuse of women is practically a biblical mandate. That's part one. It's also a touchy subject because any congregant to whom any of that message seems to directly apply could respond negatively to both the pastor and to his own wife. He could take out his frustration on the pastor or he could take it out on her on the way home and beyond. Yeah. And that's problematic. Oh, and if you insult a guy from the pulpit, um, chances are he's going to take himself, his family, and his tithe to another church. So to me, this one's a no-brainer. And that latter part, way more than the former. Question number four, why do so many women report that their ministers tell them to stay in violent marriages? Well, here's my take on this. In many cases, and definitely in Assemblies of God terms, because that's what I know, counseling a couple to separate could be a career ender for many clergy. That, and they all read the same Bible, and they're usually male. There's that that's a toxic cocktail for you right there. That makes your average pastor sympathize with the abuser, at least on a surface level, whether consciously or unconsciously, when the abuser is the man, which he is the majority of a huge majority of the time. They disapprove of the behavior, but they understand it, which makes it more difficult to personally condemn. It's crazy, but it's true. That's why in a lot of court cases, it's difficult to find an impartial jury because, you know, especially in instances of drunk driving, I remember having this uh, conversation in a class way back in like junior high school when we were talking about this in health class and how difficult it is 
sometimes to secure convictions in cases of DUI because A, chances are someone on that jury has drank and drove and got away with it, or the judge has done this, and we've all had our moments of indiscretion, and it's difficult finding 12 people who are going to be uniformly willing to ruin somebody's life over something that they've done and gotten away with. Right. So I feel like the same kind of principle applies here, where a pastor hears these stories of abuse and he shakes his head and nods and tries to be supportive. But in the back of his mind, he's like, what's the problem here? Because Mm -hmm. the same shit happens in his own house and he doesn't see the problem with it. Question number five, is the stigma surrounding divorce still too great and unforgiving? Um, Very. Yes, absolutely. It is men who marry divorced women or divorce and remarry are typically denied all kinds of authority in evangelical churches from being barred from membership and board positions to being denied their pulpit as ministers. And let's not forget that the Bible describes marriages where one or both partners are divorced as adulterous whenever either previous partner is still living. That's right there in Matthew 19, 9. And I say unto you, whoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication and shall marry another committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. That's Jesus talking. Mm -hmm. That's what he thought about this. There is also no path to reconciliation after divorce, even if the divorce happened for reasons other than abuse. Once divorced, always divorced. And if you go back, especially after having sex with someone else, you're considered defiled. But only if you're a woman. Um, Let's take a look at this passage from Deuteronomy 24. This is Deuteronomy 24, one through four. When a man had taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Oh, just let the, the, the cesspool of thought percolate there. Mm. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So basically, women who divorce and remarry are are considered damaged goods in terms of any previous relationship. But I find it interesting that they're allowed to hop from one guy to the next so long as they're issued a letter of divorcement. Yeah. Okay. They can move in one direction, but they can't move backwards. They can't decide that they want to go back to somebody because if they do that, then they're defiling the man. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) We did a whole episode on toxic masculinity. I'm not going to get my feathers ruffled over this too much tonight or go into too much detail, but seriously, what the fuck? Yeah. I mean, this is one of those what the fuck passages that just make absolutely no sense on any moral or ethical line at all. But I am going to move away from that because I've got like another hour and a half of content on that subject that you can peruse at at your leisure here. Last question that the article poses. 
is this also a problem for the men who are abused by their wives? Yes, and we will delve into this side of the equation a little bit more in a bit. In the context of the current conversation, abused men are often counseled to be more assertive and figure out how to control their wives, which can and often does eventually turn them into abusers, particularly in subsequent relationships, should they decide to divorce and remarry. So you can take a nice guy and turn him into a prick. Yeah, great. Just by applying sound, wholesome, biblical principle. <laughs> you can take a good guy and turn him into an abuser. Isn't that lovely? The next article that I found on this was actually from Christianity Today. And you know what? I found some decent content for this show on Christianity Today before. I found yeah. some, some good stuff. But I don't know. I came across this article and... I mean, there were a few jaw-dropping moments for me reading through this. This is from an article called Evangelicals and Domestic Violence Are Christian Men More Abusive? Now, I was kind of appalled, but not at all surprised to learn that Christianity Today has more than a few articles on this subject, all of which try to argue that this really isn't a problem. Mm -hmm. The author of this article, Brad Wilcox, had this to say, about whether or not Christian men are more abusive. In general, the answer is no. In my previous book, Soft, Patri soft Patriarchs, mm. but is there any such thing mm. as a soft patriarch? No. Soft Patriarchs, New Men, How Christianity Shapes Fathers and Husbands. I found that women married to church-going evangelical men compared to women married to men in other major religious traditions or women married to unaffiliated men report the highest levels of happiness. Now, he fails, however, to offer any real numbers or to present his argument in any way that even suggests that there was balance in the collection of data between groups. If you poll 50 evangelical couples and 20 non-affiliated couples, you are more likely to get a higher percentage of data that agrees with you. So where are your hard numbers, Brad? Walk us through your research, but he never gets around to it. Well, he does. In a roundabout way, he does cite one source that is also easy to just sort of set aside, and I'll get to that in a minute. The other thing I found very interesting here is that he doesn't split up the data between men and women. He pulled couples and found the majority of participants to be satisfied with their relationships. Well, if 80% of men and 20% of women respond in the affirmative, you get a majority of the participants saying they're happy, don't you? Mm. He also says, quote, my research suggests that wives married to church-going evangelical men are comparatively safe. <laughs> As compared to what? Women married to drug kingpins or mafia bosses? Talk to me, Brad. Who are we talking about here? A little further down, he, in the same paragraph, makes two statements that I think cancel each other out nicely. Number one, women who were married or cohabiting were significantly less likely to report abuse if they regularly attended religious services. Keep your mind on the word report. Yeah. Number two, men who attend religious services several times a week are 72% less likely to abuse their female partners than men from comparable backgrounds who do not attend church services. And he gets this from a paper on journals.sagepub.com. I did a little bit of research on them. This is a source whose publications are both peer-reviewed and non-peer-reviewed. So you got to take 
whatever comes off of here with somewhat of a grain of salt, especially when you've got somebody trying to manipulate what it says to prove his own point, which is precisely what's happening here. Those two statements and their proximity to one another in this article, I find interesting. Women are significantly less likely to report abuse. Okay. Remember I said, just hold on to that word report. Mm -hmm. Women are a lot less likely to report when they are being abused at home. And usually they won't report it to anyone that can help them, even if they do. Doesn't that nullify the latter statistic considering that women in relationships with, quote, religious partners who attend, quote, several services per week, and this all but identifies the religion as evangelical, several services a week, are unlikely to report abuse. How much less likely are they to experience domestic abuse, really? I'll also submit that evangelical women could appear less likely to be in abusive relationships because they are in a much smaller segment of the general public. Again, if you're dealing with a sample of 100 couples versus a sample of 1,000 couples, the numbers are most assuredly going to look smaller. That doesn't mean they are. You can pick and choose the segments and the sizes of segments that you want to study, but when you do that, you're no longer engaging in science. And science is the thing that matters here, not shoehorning your findings into specific conclusions using skewed data. And let's not forget, divorce rates among evangelicals are higher than the national average. Yeah, a lot of happy people in this religion. And there are numerous sources that corroborate that. The one that I tagged onto the show notes is from Baylor.edu. But there are a number of sources. Just Google that statement, uh, divorce rates among evangelicals, and you're going to find some pretty staggering numbers. And you're going to find some pretty staggering stories as it relates to the divorce rates among evangelicals versus other segments of the population. Finally, in this article, the author asserts that, quote, nominal Christian men are more likely to be abusers. It said that in the uh, in, in the ABC.au article also. Um, I found that interesting that there's corroborating data between these two sources. Nominal Christian men are more likely to be abusers and Partners who follow different religions are also at a higher risk. So how does that translate? It translates into this. Only backsliders and those who are unequally yoked have significant issues in this area. (laughs) Whatever. And uh, here are a few more problems when it comes to disconnecting Christianity from domestic violence and abuse. Stephen Tracy author of Patriarchy and Domestic Violence states, quote, while patriarchy may not be the overarching cause of all abuse, it is an enormous, enormously significant factor because in traditional patriarchy, males have a disproportionate share of power. And that is so true. And that uh, disproportioning of power starts with the Bible and it's reinforced by the local church. It's reinforced by the inaction of pastors and Christian counselors when these problems are brought before them. That comes from a uh, from a paper called Patriarchy and Domestic Violence Challenging Common Misconceptions, which was published in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, author Stephen Tracy. And the next problem that I jotted down here, misogyny is in fact a minority factor in domestic abuse, or at least conscious intentioned misogyny is a minority factor. This could mean that it's either the outgrowth of mental illness 
and or personality disorders or the product of conditioning about the male role in non-platonic relationships that is the catalyst for the abuse at home. Next point, pastors admittedly counsel abused women to stay with their husbands. I found this absolutely appalling, but not at all surprising. Um, there's a Wikipedia entry on Christianity and domestic violence, and that's the source of this quote. One mid 1980s survey of 5,700 pastors found that 26% of pastors ordinarily would tell a woman being abused that she should continue to submit and to trust that God would honor her action by either stopping the abuse or giving her the strength to endure it. Mm. Oh, my fake Jesus. I mean, I, I read those words and they come out of my mouth and it's like, who, who, who thinks like that? Well, I, I know who thinks like that. Yeah. We wouldn't have a show if I didn't know who thinks like that. Right. But trust that God will honor her action by stopping the abuse. And we all know how well that's going to work. Right. Or giving her the strength to endure it. Well, you know what? If she develops the strength to endure it, more power to her. She's an incredibly strong person, but she still needs to get the fuck out. Right. Okay. And here's the part that really and it made me angry. I, I was going to say it blew my mind, but it didn't. And that's wow. the scary part. 71% of pastors would never advise a battered wife to leave her husband or separate because of abuse. 71%. 71%. Of pastors will never tell an abused woman to leave her abuser. What the fuck is wrong with you people? Yeah, I wonder how many women have died from that. Oh, many. Yeah. Many, many, many. And that's the thing that, that really, really gets me about this, is that they're not just offering bad advice here. They are literally fucking killing people and doing it with impunity. No, if you are in a relationship right now that is abusive and you feel like you should get out, get out. Fuck what your pastor has to say. Get out. Because that's the only way that you're ever going to know you ever again. Okay, I'm getting a little hot under the collar, but this is a real hot button issue and it makes me angry. Yeah. It makes me really, really angry to realize that only 29% of the clergy out there have the balls to say, you know what? This is not a good situation you're in. You need to get out of there and you need to get out now. Right. It really sucks that only 29% would even have the propensity for it. And probably a much, much smaller percentage of those who would even have the balls to say it outright like that. 71% of pastors would never advise a battered wife to leave her husband. What is wrong with you people? Do you love your congregants or not? Are these your sheep or not? Why do you just let them go back and be hurt? Why? Why? Because some Bronze Age tome says that the man is the head of the woman? You know, it just... it absolutely boggles my mind how anyone with any modicum or sense of compassion could even think like that, much less tell somebody else that that's how they should live their life. Just makes me angry. And this is a little bit of that righteous anger that I keep talking about. And I think that it's justified. And I think that it's extra justified in situations where people are at least passively killing each other. Right. Okay. Yeah. 
And that is precisely what is happening. If you are a pastor and you are telling someone who is in an abusive relationship to stay with her abuser, you're a passive murderer. I'm sorry. That's what you are. And you need to repent. And you need to think about this just a little bit more. Okay? I'll put it in your terms. You need to repent. And you need to meditate on the way that you counsel people. Because you are flat out dead 100, 1,000, 1 trillion percent wrong in telling someone to stay with an abusive partner. And you know what? I can get this angry because I was one of you. And when I was in the ministry, I would never, I would not be worrying about my career if someone's life was at stake. I would tell that woman, get the fuck out. Maybe even in those words, <laughs> maybe even in those words, I would just tell her, get the fuck out. That's the way that I would have dealt with it. And, you know, I've already told my story about the the tangles that I had with the Assemblies of God because I disagreed with them on certain points. I can tell you with a surety, I would be thinking about that person first and my career second because yeah. I could find a more progressive church that would understand where I'm coming from and agree with me. But she won't be able to find another heartbeat when that bastard takes it away from her. Yeah. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. To me, it's that simple. The next problem, as I see it here, is that this is a largely and observably evangelical problem. And yeah, you know what? There are people of all ilk that fall into these categories that find themselves in these situations. And like I said at the beginning of the show, it's not just an evangelical problem, but I, there there are few. There are few issues out there onto which this religion pours more gasoline onto the fire. And that's what's got me so hot under the collar about it. The US conference, and just, just to, to contrast how other Christian sects look at this, let's look at the Catholic church Okay, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops in 2002 said, quote, as pastors of the Catholic Church in the United States, we state as clearly and strongly as we can that violence against women inside or outside the home is never justified. And then you've got the Church of England in their report responding to domestic abuse advises that. Christian pastors and counselors should not advise victims to make forgiving the perpetrator the top priority, quote, when the welfare and safety of the person being abused are at stake. Now, keeping well in mind the myriad ways that the Catholic Church has perpetuated and facilitated all kinds of abuse, particularly of impressionable children, they are at least on paper not telling women to stay with their abusers. It doesn't change my opinion of the Catholic Church one iota because I think that they're a nefarious organization that needs to go as badly as any of the others do. But that quote just shows the stark contrast between Protestant evangelicalism and more traditional denominations like the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church in the U.S., at least in what their official stances are on this subject. I am neither advocating nor congratulating the Catholic Church for anything. And frankly, I think it's very telling that an organization that routinely covers up the abuse of children would make this kind of public statement, but your average evangelical pastor will not. It makes a person wonder what kind of hell is going on behind the scenes in the average Pentecostal church. And I know that all the same abuses happen in evangelical environments. 
One of these days, I'm going to put together an episode or maybe a series on Japuza. Yeah. Jesus People USA. You want to hear about sex abuse within an established evangelical organization and one that I used to trust? Yeah. Just do some research on Japuza. We'll, we'll bring you more eventually. Why the fact that this happens in evangelical circles isn't more visible in the information age that we live in is really beyond me. What I think it boils down to is that the Catholic Church has simply had more time to amass more skeletons in its closet than any Protestant faith system has. It's just a matter of they've had more opportunity to build up this cesspool of abuse. And now it's just all kind of start, starting to bubble to the surface. But you know what? It's not invisible in evangelical circles either. It's just not quite as talked about. And it's time to start talking about it. Yeah. So as we start steering toward uh, the end of things here, I wanted, I do want to talk just briefly about the men who become victims of abusive partners. While rare in evangelical circles, men can and do find themselves on the receiving end of abuse. And the propensity for being abused can linger even if you stop going to church and long after you stop believing in anything spiritual. Men who have a genuine sense of compassion, empathy, and forgiveness are much more apt to find themselves with abusive partners. You see, that's the other end of the equation. The way we're conditioned to view forgiveness and approaching relationships from a Christ-like perspective can make it feel more mandatory in our heads to go on forgiving and loving and hoping things change. This is what we were talking about last week. Women are more apt to approach relationships this way, but plenty of men do too. And with the wrong partner, it can be a recipe for misery for a guy. It really can. So to the men out there, here's a little bit of encouragement. If you are that capable of loving someone to the point where you are the one staying with an abusive partner. I want you to know that I'm proud of your ability to compartmentalize these things, to have enough compassion to be able to stay with that person because most men don't have that capacity. And, you know, most people in general don't have that capacity. But here's the thing you still don't need to be there. You still don't need to be in that relationship. Mm -hmm. It's admirable that you love so much and that you love so hard, but don't let yourself be hurt or abused because you have this propensity for love. Be on your guard. Understand that you don't have extra responsibility as the man in the relationship to hold things together. And also understand, please, please understand, you aren't a failure if you choose to end an abusive relationship or if your abuser leaves you, you failed at nothing. You actually succeeded in something very important here. And that is getting your life back, maintaining your sense of self and giving yourself the chance to be with someone who has a snowball's chance in hell of loving you back. You aren't less of a man if you can't make a woman who is never going to love you or be satisfied with your relationship, love you back. The abuse will not stop. You're going to have to put a stop to it if you ever want to be happy again. And I'll say that to the women too. The abuse will not stop. As long as you stay, it's going to be part of the relationship. You two are going to have to put a stop to it. So since I brought the women back into the conversation, let's talk to everybody for a couple of minutes here. 
The things we learn, either through conditioning or by being told directly by our spiritual leaders about what God expects us to endure in our relationships, is largely bunk. The positives, like husbands love your wives, are great. But the notion of male dominance and the giving of perpetual forgiveness with no deference to the giver's physical and emotional wellness will leave you miserable at best and in far too many cases could leave you dead, or at least in a whole much bigger world of hurt than you even see right now or can see right now. Relationship problems won't be solved through prayer. Let me say it again. Relationship problems will not be solved with prayer. They won't be solved by being more agreeable and submissive. That just feeds the abuse and empowers the abuser, and they will not be solved by finding the strength to endure it. That was one of the most nefarious things that I read in my research. I hate that it's come out of my mouth even the couple of times that it has now because it's just, it's some of the most toxic advice that you can give anyone about dealing with something like abusive partners. No one, and I mean no one, is required to endure domestic violence, emotional abuse, or spousal rape. No one. I don't care what anyone's miscreant God or his crackpot Bronze Age psychophants have to say. No one deserves to go through those things or endure them, and no one is required to do that. No one is required to endure any of those things. Start being okay with the idea that things just aren't ever going to work out. Because in 99% of cases, they're not going to work out. The person's not going to change. So get okay with that and find someone who will actually love you back. Get out of that toxic environment and find someone who is actually going to love you. They're out there. They're out there. Don't stay just because it's easier to stay. Don't stay because you feel like you deserve it. And don't stay because you become addicted to the abuse. Do some research on the topic of trauma bonding. Don't stay because it's just become so much of a part of you that you can't see your life without it anymore. That is what they want. That is the place they want to keep you. Don't let them keep you there. And regardless of what your pastor says, let me say it again, leaving is okay. Asking for a divorce is okay. Finding someone new and starting over is okay. No one, no one is up there judging you and withholding paradise from you because you're living in sin, because you got divorced and remarried. Nobody outside of the walls of your church cares. Okay? The rest of the world Divorce and remarriage is not something that they haven't caught on to yet. This matters only within the confines of your religion and your faith and probably just your local church. No one else cares. And there's no God looking down at you and judging you and calling you an adulterer because you had the audacity to go out there and try and be happy. No. The belief that a loving God, your heavenly father, your heavenly father would want you to be alone and without human affection. The notion that any loving creator would want you to live without sex and intimacy because you, someone who is 
apparently made in his image, made a mistake about someone and can't live with them anymore is utterly ridiculous. It's a foolish and baseless notion. And you need to start getting your brain away from that because it's just flat out not true. Okay. There's no one out there who is keeping tabs and there's no one out there that is withholding these things from you or forcing you to live without them. Otherwise, you're going to go to hell. Hell is not something that you have to worry about. Hell is not something you have to worry about. You know what you have to worry about? Being happy and having a life right now. That's what matters, okay? That is the thing that's going to get you through this life. Not sitting at home alone and wishing that you had some semblance of intimacy and companionship, but you're denying yourself that because you're afraid that you'll be unclean in the eyes of your God. You have the right and responsibility to protect your body, protect your mind, and figure out how to be happy and satisfied with your life, because that is what this is. It's your life. It doesn't belong to a God who wants you to be miserable. To the women, I say, go to your nearest women's shelter and inquire about mental health and social services. If you don't have to spend one more night cohabitating with an abuser, don't. There's help for you and for your children if any are involved. If you prefer, and this option is available to men too, okay? If you prefer, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-SAFE. That's 800-799-7233. It's also going to be in the show notes, so don't scramble for your phones. Just listen. Please do not call your pastor or your best friend if she or he goes to your church. Seek secular, effective, and meaningful help and get free from the nightmare you're living. This isn't what any loving God would want for you, and it's certainly not something that you should go on enduring, hoping that your partner will change. They won't, okay? They won't. I wish I could tell you to look at me, look me square in the eye so I could say it to you plainly, but just virtually in your head, look at me. They won't change. They will not. And that's that. It's time to stop thinking that you have some sort of superpower that's going to circumvent their nature. It's time to understand that staying is a bad idea. You need to forget everything that you've been told about your spiritual responsibility toward an abuser and take steps, immediate definitive steps toward getting out, starting over, and finally getting to know who you are. You've spent enough time being told what you are by your abusive partner. You've spent enough time being told what you are by your pastor and by your religion. It's time to break free. It's time to strip your abuser of their power and get tangibly, physically, and most important, emotionally unbound. enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's 
That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.